Today we have Esther Aguilera. Welcome to American Narratives Podcast, Esther. Esther brings together accomplished executives at the highest levels of corporate governance to advance diversity in the boardroom. She is recognized as a social entrepreneur and turnaround specialist leading scale-up innovative change and managing high-performance teams. She brings a 25-year record of success, executing strategic business plans to drive organizational effectiveness, growth, and impact. Her previous positions include leading the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute for 11 years as its president and CEO, principal at the Dewey Square Group, senior advisor to the secretary to the U.S. Department of Energy, executive and legislative director of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and a policy analyst at the National Council of La Raza. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Public Policy from Occidental College and completed the Harvard Corporate Governance Executive Program in 2005. Esther is currently the President and CEO of Latino Corporate Directors Association. Esther, welcome to American Narratives. Marianne and Joe, it's a pleasure to join you. I'm happy to be here. It's so cool to have you, Esther, and thank you so much. I'll tell you, that's quite a pedigree that you have, a real rich set of experiences and leadership roles. And, you know, I know our audience is really interested to hear a little bit more about you as a person and you and your career and some of your career choices and things that they might be able to derive from your story and your narrative. Um, let's start off with just kind of you as a person. Where, do you, where does your family come from? Where were you born? And where did you spend your formative years? Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, you know, it's interesting before I get into the story of um, my family story is that my personal and professional pursuits have been about elevating Latinos to positions of power and leadership and helping us claim a seat at the table. And I start with that because my pathway and trajectory to, to doing this work was not, you know, was not a straight path. So my fam- I was born in Jalisco, Mexico. And my family moved to the United States when I was four. There were six of us. We were undocumented. We moved to Southern California where we had other, you know, relations and uh, extended family in the region and area. My my father was living in the States. And that's sort of where, um, where I grew up in Southern California. In fact, in the city of San Fernando. Um, I think the, um, the, some of the story about our family and getting here was, again, not a straight path. So my paternal grandmother, um, Rufina Perez, was uh, from Colorado. Her family was in Colorado for generations before Colorado was part of the U.S. She was a mix of Mexican and Native American. And anyways, in the... um, in the 1830s, uh, when the Great Depression hit, she had married a Mexican. And there was a program, an immigration program called repatriation. They were repatriating Mexican nationals. But um, as uh, history tells us, uh, may, many uh, Americans and Mexican Americans uh, and American citizens who were of Mexican descent were swept up in that in that um, repatriation. And so my grandmother, when she 
got married. Um, they didn't have a lot of money to get lawyers to, you know, because the path to citizenship for her husband was there, but he was being deported. And she had to decide whether she whether she uh, stayed with her family and, you know, the community she, she knows or moved to Mexico with her husband. So she made the trek and moved to Mexico. And it was not by choice, but, you know, in that period, a lot of Mexicans faced, um, you know, they were uh, deported uh, whether you had claims or not. So that's a little bit about the, the history. Now, we... We moved to the U.S., we were undocumented, um, but because my grandmother uh, was American, my dad had eligibility and was a, should have been able to quickly apply for citizenship, but that didn't happen. It took 10 years after we moved to the States uh, because one, you know, we, again, uh, my I'm the daughter of a landscape laborer and a garment worker. So, again, didn't have the money. We would, I remember when we were young going to the INS office and st- getting in line. This was back when ICE was known as INS. Um, we would get in line to file our claim, and that would go nowhere. And we would hire um, some, uh, I think they're, there's some legal aid uh, that really weren't set up to help us out. And so, again, we were undocumented, again, um, for 10 years until our um, status was adjusted. And actually it was when um, Catholic Charities stepped in and had their lawyers take a look at our case that we were able to advance. And my grandmother came you know, flew for the first time since she left to uh, visit us and visit her family to get her paperwork in line. And when that happened, voila, you know, a couple of years later, my dad was a citizen and he was petitioning for us. So it's, um, you know, this points to a lot of other, um, and we can maybe get into it a, a little bit later, but really a lot of history of, of anti-Latino violence in the U.S., um, but in terms of my story, uh, so we we um, didn't know much about the education system, and I have to say, you know, we we strive to um, work hard. My parents did, but didn't know how to navigate a lot of the system. And I remember my sister telling me I had my two older brothers and sisters, in addition to my parents, were very. Um, instrumental in in guiding us and of course they were you know figuring things out for themselves but I remember my sister coming home from school one day she was you know in middle school and she said oh we were visited by someone who was an engineer and I they told us about college and I never knew about that and this person said that you know if you you know study work on math and and science and in engineering is a good career and a good pathway and a good job. And so she thought, wow, this is a pathway out of poverty. I mean, we uh, we struggled, especially because my father's job was seasonal. Uh, during the winters, there wasn't a lot of, of work. And so, um, 
you know, that was, that was really, really tough, but we all, you know, hung together as a family. The other interesting thing is that even once we got our citizenship, we, um, didn't know about any other sort of uh, food stamps or aid. I mean, I think the biggest thing that really helped us was school lunches. We just didn't know that these things were available. And, you know, many times a lot of Latino families are, you know, see it as, as handouts and, or really just don't know how to navigate it or know that it's an option. So it's interesting to kind of bring that up here. So that's, um, a little bit about how we then all uh, my sister went to college, all of my siblings and I went to college. And I think that, that my older siblings pursuing it and working hard to get to college was what helped inspire me and the rest of the younger uh, siblings to do the same. Yeah, that's what a really interesting story. And I like that you went back even a few generations because it helps yes. us understand context. And, you know, those those stories carry on through the family and really help us tell us who we are, what our identity is. Uh, and to come from there to here is quite an interesting journey. We're going to have a chance to talk a little bit about that, too, I guess. And so the, you, you have this idea of being an engineer. Did you go to school for engineering and what did you ultimately graduate in? Well, I did um, focus on math and science through high school, and all of us did. My brother is a doctor. My sister did get her engineering degree, and uh, my brother also, uh, my other brothers had uh, the math and engineering backgrounds. It's interesting. I I had an opportunity to um, uh, attend Occidental College, so I, I got a scholarship, a full scholarship to attend, and when I got there... I looked at, um, you know, their science and engineering, and I was finding that, you know, I wasn't making a connection with it. Um, Certainly going to a private school was in itself, uh, you know, such a different experience, so different from what I grew up in and, you know, meeting people from all over the country who, um, you know, were going to school there was a, a real... I think it was a, a good growth experience overall and expanding horizons. Um, so when it came to my studies, I felt, well, I'm not making a connection with the sciences. So I tried eco- economics and saw, well, there's a lot of numbers here, but not a connection to people. And and then um, political science, also I didn't see the science and people connection. So luckily for me, um, Occidental had, it was the second year that they started a public policy program. And my counselors advised me, why don't you try this out? And, you know, I kind of fell in love with it because it is about policies and how they impact people in communities. And a, a key pivot point for me, one was that finding public policy and and two is when I was the um this was in the late nineteen eighties and so 
you know, I thought, well, um, laws and, and divvying up resources without us at the table. So that intrigued me, and that's what led me to get my um, my degree in public policy. And I'm looking here in terms of, of integrating into the U.S. society. Certainly college was pivotal there. I will say that um, just going a little to the upbringing, you know, there was a lot, even in California, there was a lot of discrimination if you spoke Spanish. There was a nasty word called wetback. And if you spoke Spanish, it meant that you were a recent arrival and you were a wetback. And it's just the kinds of things that really, you know, are hurtful. You don't realize it at the time. But that even in growing up in a community that was majority Mexican, there was that kind of, of um, you know, derogatory uh, comments and statements. So I, I remember, um, you know, clearly my first language was Spanish. And uh, I remember hearing that uh, talked about with others and so, you know, and, and myself. So it was, you know, not being able to embrace as much of of your language and, and you know, being told that even your culture is something that isn't... Uh, something to embrace in U.S. society. Um, I saw that with many young people growing up. Yes, Esther, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, a lot of what you're saying really resonates with me coming from, you know, my parents are from Mexico, um, bo- being born and raised in, in a border town. But, you know, I'd love to learn more of, of how did that, you know, your experiences growing up in California shape your perspective? Well, we knew that... Um, for me, as a, a young woman, what always came to mind for me is that if um, if it hadn't been for the courage and brave me, bravery, especially of my mother, to um, take a, a you know a dangerous journey to travel from Jalisco to Tijuana, and you know make a, she at one point in that journey had to cross the border with a different route and leave us, her kids with, you know, these, the coyotes, these other folks who were going to help us get us across. And so the, the thing that always that I remember is, but for that um, bravery, my life would have been very different in Mexico because there's not a lot of opportunity for women there. We were, again, grew up in a small ranching town community and call it El Rancho. Mm -hmm. And um, so I always thought, wow, you know, um, this at least opens up doors. Um, I don't know how to open up all those doors, but, you know, it was, there weren't a lot of um, people that looked like me to aspire to so that I knew. So it was more kind of blindly moving forward and and um, seeing how how these doors opened up for me and how I can help open up the doors. That's terrific. Thank you so much. And, and uh, you're right, there maybe was a lack of role models, even a lack of awareness of opportunity. It sounds like you had some people and some information that came along and ultimately that you were able to execute some interesting career decisions. <clears throat> Let's talk about your career. 
Um, you, you finished at Accidental College. Kind of, what did you do at post college, and how did you enter into your career? And what were your decisions? You know, that kind of led to your career choices. Well, it was um, interesting. I, I happened to be. Um, I, I did some internships, and my senior theses put me in touch with some key leaders in the community. My college professor was also, um, you know, instrumental in in helping guide sort of both um, internship and, and other mentors to to develop while I was in college. So right after college, I saved up my pennies and uh, traveled uh, to the East Coast just to visit a friend. And we, again, saved up pennies and we did this short uh, trip to Europe. Um, Coming back, um, he was from the D.C. area. And so we came back and and were staying with his family during my visit to Washington, D.C. This was in 1990. So in 1990, I, um, I did that trip, landed here. I called my, my uh, college professors and, and mentors and asked, so who is there to meet in Washington, D.C.? I just want some informational interviews. My plan was to take that month off after college, but then go right back to California to look for a job. So luckily, one of my uh, mentors connected me with the National Council of La Raza. said, well, go visit uh, Charles Kamasaki, who he's still there today. Um, and, and I did. He took the meeting, again, thanks to uh, that connection. Um, and we had a great conversation. Two weeks later, which, by the way, I was still in the D.C. area, they called and said, well, you know, we have a policy, a junior policy analyst position, and uh, we want to offer that that job um, to you. And I said, wow, I wasn't expecting it. And so I quickly had to call colleagues and friends and say, well, this is clearly an opportunity. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, at our kitchen table, we didn't talk politics and economy and the markets and everything else. So, um, so I, I took the chance, and they took a chance on me. And my first job was as a junior policy analyst with the National Council of La Raza. That's how I wound up in Washington D.C. Wow! So that that really shows the power of network, power of introductions, uh, and being in the right place at the right time. And you know, where opportunity and capability perhaps conflude and come together. Uh, walk us through your career journey then, maybe kind of Cliff Notes version. Uh, how long were you at La Rasa and, and what were your kind of roles within La Rasa and then post La Rasa? Sure. Well, you know, I think it had more to do, again, with someone taking a chance on me. And I, I found over the years that oftentimes um, – your own community is more likely to take a chance on on you than others. So I found that was um, a great pathway. Um, and clearly, as you mentioned, the connections matter. So I spent uh, a couple of years with uh, NCLR. That is, it's known today as Unidos US doing research policy work. It was a great training ground. And then I had an opportunity to work on Capitol Hill with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And, of course, this is all of the 
congressional leaders, Latino leaders, uh, coalescing to try and advance opportunity and advancement for the the Latino community nationwide. Uh, Soon after joining as a staff member, there was a leadership transition. And, you know, one of this was um, Bill Richardson, who was a member of the CHC, you know, he had one of his staff persons tap me and said, well, do you want the job of executive director? And I thought, oh my, this is a, it was a time when uh, there's transition on Capitol Hill and resources were taken away from doing this particular role. I knew it was going to be a lot of work. So I said, okay, yeah, I'm interested. And so um, Bill Richardson at a meeting of the members of Congress of the Hispanic Caucus kind of said, well, we're losing our current executive director. I think, you know, um, I'd like to recommend Esther right in the middle of that meeting. And I, that's how I became at a very young age before the age of 30 executive director of, of course, kind of the, not only the community on my shoulders, but really anything national or global that happens um, that impacts community was all part of what I worked on. So it was clearly a, um, a huge learning opportunity for me. Again, stepping into the halls of, of Congress, I had, you know, a year under my belt. But, um, you know, I, it was interesting. It, I found that, look, we are adaptable resilient. I found like I'm a sponge. I, I, I relate, uh, you know, well, I like uh, stepping out of the box and, and, and clearly taking a chance to come to a place like DC or even taking a job on Capitol Hill um, was, was great. And I, you know, it was a lot of work. It was me and maybe one other intern. Um, so it was a huge amount of work, but, you know, I think that I worked on Capitol Hill for about six years. And one thing that, um, that really was another key pivot point, because I did everything from telecommunications legislation, I worked on immigration, education, healthcare, um, you kind of had to be a jack of all trades. But at one point, I not only obviously worked with the members of Congress, we brought in cabinet members to meet with the caucus and I prepared all the briefing material. We organized meetings with the president of the United States at least twice a year to meet with the leaders of the Latino community in the caucus. Um, And in one instance, when I was organizing a meeting with then president Clinton, uh, Congressman Javier Becerra was the chair of the Hispanic Caucus at the time, so he was my boss. I worked with three different members of Congress's chairs. And, you know, as you know, Javier Becerra went on to become the Attorney General in California and then recently announced as um, the Secretary of of um, HHS. Health and Human Services, but when we were organizing this meeting for uh, with the president, you know, he said, "Well, we have these meetings, uh, you know, a couple times a year, and we always focus on the issues like the jobs and immigration, the economy that we that are 
critical at the time, but I'm going to focus this meeting on uh, leadership and political appointments. And he told the president, you know, those issues are always going to matter to us. We're going to engage with you year-round on them. I want to focus this meeting on why so few Latinos are in your leadership ranks uh, as appointees. Um, you say you want a, a cabinet and an administration that looks like America, but you're missing one of the largest and growing demographics in the country. And the president said, you know, Javier, you're right. And we're going to change that. Uh, I want you to meet twice a month with my, with my chief of staff and deputy chief of staff to make a course correction here and address this. And so I led that effort. And it, the interesting wow. thing, going into that meeting with so much on my plate between all of the heavy legislative issues, I thought, oh, my God, Here's another issue. It, initially, I saw it as like, oh, my, how are we going to move that needle? Uh, but what I came to realize uh, and the brilliance of, of that move was the importance of, of leadership and having uh, Latinos in positions of power and, and leadership is critical uh, to advancement as a whole for the country and a community. And so that was kind of a big pivot point for me in really um, kind of, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, having a professional pursuit uh, to advance Latinos to positions of, of power and leadership, uh, you know, and, and I've been able to advance that in many of my other roles as I moved along in my, my professional career, but that was one key pivot area. That is a, that's a, what a cool story. And obviously to have that ability to influence decision-making and placement of uh, Latino leaders, um, you know, kind of going forward. And that sounds like it's really been quarter year mission, you know, and purpose as a professional is really helping the advancement and, highlighting those key Latinos in really key roles, certainly in the in the American government and otherwise. Absolutely. And that's very evident, especially right now, you know, social media is very important and everyone that is engaging in, in, in it, they can show what they're doing within, within the community. And Esther, you're, you're right up there. I follow you. I, I admire all the work that you're doing. I, I followed the hashtag because you, you're absolutely right. When you put diversity includes Latinos, um, that's that's something that we still need to continue to work on. But, you know, as we talk to you through your career journey, obviously there's been a lot of learnings through through those years, right? Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what have you liked the most and, and maybe least about the work that you've done? Sure. Well, a little more on this leadership trajectory. You know, I um, had a... I, was CEO of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute for 11 years. And, and this organization was about uh, young leaders. It, we offered paid internships and fellowships uh, and brought high school students to Washington, D.C. for a, a powerful leadership development opportunity and, you know, had uh, a lot of these young people get on a flight for the first time and leave their communities um, again, high school, college, and some graduate students. And I would tell the, the young people when they'd come in and 
again, they're working in the marble halls of Congress, that this Congress and the country are as much yours as anybody else's. Because I don't think anybody ever told them that before. You sometimes have to feel the part. And what I, I loved, I, I was very creative. One, I got Southwest Airlines to uh, provide round-trip transportation for these young people so they didn't have, you know, many didn't have the resources to do that. And then I worked with Macy's, and Macy's uh, gave them a, a a professional wardrobe, just a, at least one suit with a couple of exchanges because sometimes when you feel the part and you don't, you know, feel like at least you look like an outsider, even though inside sometimes you feel that way. Um, it's a very empowering position, and and that type of exposure to a broad network and wraparound services to help you succeed in something very new and different. Um, you know, I see the successes today. So that was kind of another level and tier. In terms of of um, of your question, Marianne, um, you know, I was at, I had an opportunity as well to work for Bill Richardson when he was the secretary of the Department of Energy. And uh, this was after the Hispanic Caucus. And he uh, put me in a very senior leadership role to head up the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization, working with women and uh, uh, black, Latino, veteran, um, small business owners. The Department of Energy was the second largest procurement agency, second to DOD, and yet, you know, um, there was um, the secretary uh, wanted to ensure that, um, you know, there was an equitable opportunity for women and minorities to, to get those contracts. And so he put me in, in charge of that big task. Um, and what I found was, one, um, that I have a, a very natural kind of strategic approach to uh, my work in, in terms of, of positioning and mes- mes- messaging some of the work. Uh, but as well, you know, for a huge department like the Department of Energy with lots of big agencies, you know, it's hard to turn a big ship overnight. So it was, uh, I put in place a, um, a plan that had, had a lot of buy-in and built-in kind of um, working with each of the departments. You had energy efficiency, you had fossil fuels, you had, you know, um, you know nuclear uh, departments within the department. And it was meeting with each and every one of them to kind of bring them in as um, partners and why they're part of the solution and build buy-in that made it possible to have huge success with this program. And I think at the end, we increased small business contracting by about a billion in a very short period of time and put in place the first um, conference. The the, uh, secretary made time in his calendar to launch the first, you know, conference to kind of have build more awareness and connect, connect, connect small businesses with the procurement um, agents that can help make them happen. So that was, um, I, I like 
seeing things grow. So as much as I like, uh, again, elevating Latinos to positions of leadership, I, I like um, taking a small project and being building a very strategic plan and, and seeing it grow. I did the same thing at um, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. My predecessor did a phenomenal job. Uh, and I, in the 11 years that I, I ran the organization, I you know, tripled the students we were serving and, you know, doubled, tripled the revenue. Um, and it was, what was interesting there is that it was an organization that was very well known because it was initially launched by members of Congress who were still involved. So people thought about it as, you know, being of these congressional leaders and this big glitzy awards dinner and gala that we put on with the president and all these big wigs. But at the core, the organization was about youth. Every day in and day out, we worked and to support and place these, these young people in internships and fellowship opportunities in, in these congressional offices and work with them day in and day out. So I helped to kind of really elevate uh, the story. And one um, mentor at that time, when I told her, when I took on the role and I told her what I was doing, she said, wow. She put it, helped put it in perspective for me. She said, our mission was to develop the next generation of, of Latino leaders. And she said, wow, you have an awesome task to help build the leadership of the largest, most important growing demographic in the country. That is a huge job. And, and the way that that helped was, again, to put things in perspective. We're not doing this just you know, because we want to attend nice balls and galas and, you know, for the titles. But it is, again, back to that um, trajectory of this uh, positioning leaders. Yeah, that I don't know if you could talk about a bigger mission than what you just articulated there. That's I know. pretty heady stuff. I, yeah, let's take the largest demographic, growing demographic, and, and create future leaders across the United States. <laughs> Wow, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, well, and that's one of the things I do today, right? So, um, uh, but in a very different way, which was another opportunity. There was a brand new organization, the organization I lead today, the Latino Corporate Directors Association, and it was formed by um, Latino uh, leaders who serve on public and large private company boards. And they got tired of complaining about the low number of Latinos on boards. We are invisible mm -hmm. on corporate boards, in C-suite positions, even though there's phenomenal talent out there. And so they brought me on to build the organization. They had you know, laid a, a foundation. So I put kind of our strategic framework to build a supply, showcase the fact that there are qualified uh, Latinos because we still kept hearing the excuse that we can't find qualified Latinos. We said, there's a ton of them. Um, building, raising awareness through research and advocacy that never existed before in this space and then 
providing quality programming for experienced directors as well as a board-ready institute that gives our executive members the tools to get on their first board. And, you know, everything I, I do is very comprehensive because we can't afford just to say, okay, I'm going to build the supply side without addressing, you know, the demand and, and the advocacy and the raising awareness and the research side. So I think that's sort of how I grew um, CHCI and, and LCDA. And just in the last couple of years, our membership tripled. Um, we are, you know, working with tier one um business outlets and news outlets to get the message out. It is a tough space because it's slow going, but, you know, I think there's a new attention um, on finally on this topic. And again, I think you had mentioned it, Joe, that it was kind of a right place at the right time. It's a good thing that, you know, we've grown it as much as we have in a short period of time because there is, a conversation today about why it matters, why diversity on boards is important because it's not just a good thing to do. It's about the business imperative. And, you know, if you have boards that don't reflect or are disconnected from their customer and employee base, you know, that could lead to missed business opportunity, missed market growth and it contributes to your corporate culture. So for that and, you know, the reasons, um, Marianne, that you mentioned, what's shocking is a lot of companies espouse, you know, a commitment to diversity, yet what I keep reminding them of is that diversity without Latinos is incomplete, we're two in 10 Americans. This is 60 million Americans and growing by a million a year. And we contribute 25% of GDP. Our um, market share in terms of purchasing power is growing 75% faster than the general population. I mean, how much more of a business case do you need? And if you care about diversity, you're not complete yet. Yeah. You know, I, I, one thing I'll say, and I know we, we're going to get on to the last few questions. Uh, we, we've had a unique focus on this area with our Latino career assessment. Um, and one of the drivers for us is how do you help help let Latinos really navigate to those top officer roles? It's an interesting stat that only 4% of senior executives are of Latino heritage, yet they're 20% of the population, right? So the, right. the, the, um, there's a lot of work to do to actually kind of uh, obviously dissolve the divide. And I think you're one of the key stakeholders in the nation actually getting that done. So kudos to you. Absolutely, Esther. So, you know, last, last few questions for you to think about. Um, you've had great success, obviously having great impact in, in the community nationwide, um, what have been some of your challenges or mistakes along the way, and what did you learn from them? Well, I think it's important to I've, – I've been lucky to build some teams around me that, one, um, are passionate um, and, you know, as committed uh, as I. So I think that's always important. And I think that that having, you know, my leadership style is one of 
of um, empowering my team. Uh, that's important. So I think along the way, that's that's been, you know, the team really matters. And, you know, it's very easy for any team to, um, you know, you, you have to uh, really gear it and build it so that there is um, transparency and open conversation. Because as soon as someone comes in that um, can hold it back, even though they are producing great results, you know, those are the types of things that get addressed. You know, I recently spoke at a, at a, a conference when we were talking about what's happening with Me Too and, you know, the treatment of women in the workplace. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I said was that, you know, we have to, this was in the financial industry, and I, I said, well, look, you can have great performers who are hitting your biggest marks um, in Wall Street or wh- whichever you know, business objective you have. But if that person is, a, is bringing down your culture and certainly uh, you know, mistreating women or anybody else, I don't care how much of a good performer that person is. That is a poison to your culture, your work, and productivity for everybody else. That person needs to go. And that's something that, um, you know, is, is sometimes it's easy for us to kind of, you know, brush something under the rug. So I think that's um, an important thing, I think, for for all of us and that I've learned along the way. So it's a kind of a... a a balance there in terms of again building a, a great team of high per, high performing team. I've been lucky to have to have that. I think the only other um, the one thing that that uh, in this current time in our country that you know we're having a reckoning over um, our history and atrocities that so many communities have faced. You know, right now our leaders in the Latino community are are having conversations about the forgotten history of anti-Latino violence in the U.S. Of course, you know, in the last four years, Latinos have been demonized by our previous president and led to atrocities and an increase in hate crimes, including the recent um, massacre in El Paso, on August 3rd, 2019, I think we need to remember that date. And, um, you know, this is, um, but, it, you know, it, we have a history of, of um, sanctioned massacres, violence, land confiscation. I started the story with forced displacement of Latinos in the mid to Mid, starting in the mid-1800s, and, and of course we're still seeing some of that today. Um, and there's an example in 1918 in Borvenir, Texas, there was a, a massacre that was led by Texas Rangers, state police, and vigilantes. They killed 15 uh, Mexican men and boys, and um, there was no, no one was prosecuted. But, you know, these atrocities occurred across the Southwest um, as part of a 
of efforts to consolidate white economic control in southwestern states. Of course, many of these states were part of Mexico before. And so I think there's coming full circle here. Um, you know, this is really about um, this isn't this is about understanding each other's stories. And it is about owning our own for Latinos, owning our own history and truth. And by doing that, this is about making it better for next generations. And we can't, we have some steps to take there. Yes, we do, Esther. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, as, as we wrap up, are there any key lessons or learnings that you would like to share um, with the audience? Yeah, I think it was just, as I mentioned, uh, the last couple of, of items related to, again, building authentic teams and, and being open about, um, you know, the kind of culture you're creating. And then second with the community around our, the forgotten history. And, um, and we uh, started earlier this conversation about uh, everyone understanding each other's stories and, and backgrounds and histories and how much more we have to go. We have a, a long way to go. But until we, I think these conversations are important. And I'm really glad, Joe and Marianne, that you invited me to join you. Yeah, you know, and I, thank you. And I, I've learned a few things, so thank you. And, I, you know, I, I, one of the kind of, kind of insights perhaps I have is in order for us and for Latinos or any underrepresented population to lead, they have to know their history. Um, to know where you're going, you have to know where you came from. Uh, and you don't want bad patterns to repeat themselves. And you want to obviously everything to be better for the next generation, but we can't just look forward. We have to look back to look forward. That's a little bit of what I heard you say. Would that be, would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one way that it's still manifested today, Joe is, um, you know, too often there is a, a, a racial bias. If you look at, and it's documented, but I see it happen all the time in my work, is you see two phenomenal leaders that have equally strong um, career trajectories and accomplishments. And for some reason, there is a kind of either a higher bar that the Latino needs to meet and or a sense of invisibility that there they're not seen as credible as a white counterpart. That is part of that legacy in history that we still live today, that it is okay to, you know, treat brown people, Latinos poorly or not equitably, and it's, a, it's accepted. Um, so I, I still see that with, we have phenomenal candidates for, boardrooms or C-suite roles, and it's so easy to justify for, you know, again, the dominant, um, we, we talk about, you know, white pr privilege and dominance, and, and I think there's there's this bias that, um, that Latinos don't measure up, even though all of the hard work and trajectory and work is there. It just doesn't get noticed. It almost... There's a blind, there's a blindness and there's an invisibility to Latinos that exist today that have a lot to do with our history and a lot to do with our own personal journey. Because I will tell you this, 
you can't point the fingers elsewhere. What I love about the organization, as I mentioned with LCDA, is that these were leaders that said, we can't complain about these numbers. What are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think half the story here is how we as a community are, are owning our truth and speaking about it in forums like these and others, because we can't expect others to know our history if we don't or talk about it. Absolutely. So it goes both ways. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think we need more leaders like you, Esther, more organizations like LCDA that will lift up the community and voice vo- voice our point of view as well. So, Esther, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, your story, uh, your willingness to share and be uh, take the time to really tell your story and kind of let us know how you're thinking, what you're up to, what you're focused on, and, you know, have some of these key takeaways is, is immensely helpful um, to, to really the community and really all of, you know, all of the folks that are listening to this broadcast. So thank you again and uh, all the best and we'll stay connected. Thank you both. And congratulations on launching American narratives. The timing is great. I have many more stories, but uh, I think uh, there was plenty and I enjoyed speaking to both of you. Well, we may get you on for part, part, two here at one point in the future but uh so you might not be off the hook Esther. we'll be knocking on your door a great pleasure again thank you for having me thank you american narratives is brought to you by cmp a minority and women-owned firm providing solutions across the full talent life cycle from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com.